0: Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 21, and we really need the whole story, so we're going to read through the whole chapter. 1 Kings chapter 21. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near next to my house and for it I will give you a vineyard better than it or if it seems good to you I will give you its worth and money but Naboth said to Ahab the Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you so Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, let your heart be cheerful, and I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letters saying, proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people and seat two men scoundrels before him to bear witness against him saying, you have blasphemed God and the king, then take him out and stone him that he may die. So the men of his city, the elders and nobles who were inhabitants of his city did as Jezebel had sent to them as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people. And two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him. And the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Then they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead." And it came to pass, when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. So it was, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity, and I will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel his wife stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and I pray that as I give an exposition of it, that it would be uh, a word that you speak to our hearts, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. on Tuesday, Ray asked if I would preach an Election Day sermon. I was not initially inclined to do so, but the more I thought about it, uh, the more I thought that I, I really should, problem is today is Reformation Day, and next Sunday I am going to be in California. But I think uh, those two days really can be merged together. When you think about the Reformation, they applied the Bible to all of life, didn't they? And those Reformers certainly brought uh, rebukes uh, to the political arena. And I believe that this passage is a perfect, perfect description and uh, application to modern politics. God hates the same issues today that he says that he hated in 1 Kings chapter 21. So we're we're going to dive straight into the text. Verse 1 introduces us to two characters who will represent the conflicting interests of liberty and tyranny in our own nation. It says, and it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So side by side lived a man of liberty and a man of tyranny. And you don't actually have to live in Washington, D.C. to be that close to the tyrannical actions of the Ahabs of today. Almost every city and county, our own city council has passed LGBTQ uh, laws that actually discriminate and invade into the properties of, uh, of businesses in our own city. Everywhere you look in America there are unconstitutional Ahabs who are becoming more and more bold. And one of the problems that I haven't even put into your outline today is that Naboth's tend to be all alone. Nobody has their backs and that's a shame. Uh, they are vulnerable when they are alone. Benjamin Franklin understood the danger of that and said, we must all hang together, or assuredly, we shall all hang separately. It is only when the Naboths of, uh, of America, there's a large enough uprising of them who are networked together and demand that the lost liberties uh, be restored to us, that politicians are going to take notice, unless, of course, God brings a revival and reformation. Uh, In which case, the same thing's going to happen. There's going to be more of a a unity in the church, and uh, they're going to be willing to apply the whole Bible to the whole of life, including politics. But I think in the meantime, we do need to have the backs of Naboths who are in Washington, D.C., in the universities, in the state capital, in the medical uh, field, in all of these areas that the tentacles of government have intruded. We need to have their back. This story is as relevant today as when it was written. It is a story that brings 20 prophetic rebukes to 2020 politics. And I'll be quite frank that the first problem was that the citizens of Isra- Israel even put Ahab into power. You might think, well, they just grabbed power. But actually, in Israel, usually, and there were times where there were just coups, military coups, but they, Israelites, voted uh, for the people who would rule over them. That's the way it was supposed to be. And even if it wasn't that way, there was always the option of interposition and impeachment. They should have impeached Ahab. Ahab was an unbeliever who allowed his wife to bring foreign religions into Israel and on many levels he was disqualified for office. Now granted, Ahab was one of the most, if not the most capable, other than Solomon, the most capable administrator and leaders in Israelite history. If you read secular history, you will see that that is the case. He was a charismatic leader who was able to work across the aisle and form coalitions of people who otherwise would be sparring factions. Secular history tells us he was an incredibly capable politician within the nation as well as in foreign affairs. He commanded a better military than Solomon before him. The New International Dictionary of the Bible says, the number of his chariots was far greater than the number credited to any other king. So Ahab represents the hawks in American Republican politics, but when you think about it, he also represents the social approaches and issues that the Democrats uh, replace. He's, he's really a, a perfect representative of modern politics. But the main point here is that God's evaluation of Ahab was he was an unbeliever, and as such he did not even meet the minimum qualification for office. The lowest level is given in 2 Samuel 23, verse 3. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. God does not look at politics like we do, and the list of problems that flowed from his unbelief is consistent with that unbelief. I mean, just think about it. If you don't believe that God's laws are a restriction to how you rule, you're going to make up your own laws, right? If you don't believe that God is going to put sanctions upon you and enforce his own standards, you're not going to fear breaking his laws. I mean, it's as simple as that. Now, of course, Ahab put on a good show of being a good king. In politics, you need to do that. But God wants us to look behind the scenes and see what is going on from his perspective. And today's sermon is as much a rebuke of the church for lacking a biblical political worldview as it is a rebuke of 2020 politics. Problem number two, Ahab wants your property. Verse two says... So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near, next to my house. For And for it, I will give you a vineyard better than it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. That sounds like a win-win situation. He's just negotiating with them. He's got the art of the deal down pat. And the problem was Uh, He's negotiating in politics, like he was used to negotiating in business, and uh, God does not shine to governments taking property. And I want you to notice that this passage indicates that Naboth's right to own and to control his property continues no matter what the government's desires might be. And in this case, it was tangible property. In verse 2, even Ahab recognizes that the land belonged to Naboth, and he must ask for it. He says, "Give me your vineyard," and the vineyard was Naboth to give, to withhold, and he was able to say no to the government. Now you might say, "Well, that's not really true today. Nobody, nobody's taking your property. Uh, this, this is, uh, uh, you know, we have property rights today, just like they did back then." But I would beg to differ. Government surveillance is an intrusion into private property all by itself. Roadside strip searches, asset forfeiture, eminent domain. These are just four of dozens of ways in which local, state, and federal governments have intruded into private property. Taxation is another uh, form of intrusion. Taxation really presupposes the government's ownership of property as Karl Marx so clearly stated Um, If you think you own your house, just try not paying your taxes for a couple of years and you'll see who really owns your house. Um, You are a serf, a feudal serf, and you are there at the government's um, uh, discretion. You have a license to live there. Estate taxes, income taxes have all been interpreted by the courts themselves as government's ownership. What you take home, you are allowed by the government to take, uh, to keep. Our founding fathers would not have stood for this. Uh, they fought to free our country from the very things that our politicians take for granted as being proper. John Whitehead of the Rutherford Institute, he's a reformed reconstructionist, uh, head of that legal institution that protects the liberties of people, great institution, but John Whitehead said, we no longer have any real property rights. That house you live in, the car you drive, the small or not so small acreage of land that has been passed down through your family or that you scrimped and saved to acquire, whatever money you manage to keep in your bank account after the government and its cronies have taken their first and second and third cut, none of it is safe from the government's greedy grasp. At no point do you ever have any real ownership of anything other than the clothes on your back. Everything else can be seized by the government under one pretext or another. Civil asset forfeiture, unpaid taxes, eminent domain, public interest, etc., etc., etc. Did you know that the Dodd-Frank Act of 2008 authorizes the government at any time to confiscate money from your bank account? Now sure, they will give you an equivalent number of stocks in that failing bank, worthless stocks, but hey, you've got an equivalent that they've given to you, but there are other countries can seize up to 50% of your assets without any compensation whatsoever, even worthless stock. Uh, this is worse than Ahab's view of property. Here is another example. American law states, quote, In order to prevent hoarding, no person shall accumulate in excess of the reasonable demands of business, personal or home consumption and it goes on to list a whole bunch of other things and so who determines what is a reasonable amount of food storage the act goes on to say that the president presumably through the agencies is authorized quote the accumulation of materials in excess of the reasonable demands of business personal or home consumption as he deems necessary to carry out the objectives of this act that is an ahab property grab now they haven't done it yet haven't done it yet. All they've done is to ask, as Ahab so, so politely asked. Uh, but since there is no resistance to laws like this, uh, I think the government assumes this has been in place for a long time. They have permission. Hundreds of similar examples of the permission to steal from citizens have been granted by legislatures and courts over the past 100 years. This is not a new thing. Here's the point. We can no longer be one-issue people. Some people, the only political concern they're interested in is the pro-life issue. But let me tell you, all three issues of life, liberty, and property hang or fall together. You intrude into one, the government can logically intrude into all of the others. That's what happened here? Property right was resisted, life was taken, liberty was taken... You erode one, the others are eroded, as can be seen by the uh, no-knock police break-ins where innocent people die. So all three, life, liberty, and property, have been evaporated in America. We have gone way beyond Ahab's actions in this chapter. Problem three is that Ahab resents it when you assert your God-given rights. He resents it. See, Naboth was supposed to just politely cooperate. After all, the government asked so nicely. Uh, they offered even more compensation than what it was worth, right? He was supposed to be a good citizen and trust that the king always has everyone's best interests in mind. Verses 3 through 4. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab went into his house. Sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. There are basically three rights that Naboth uh, was asserting that he had. He had the right, the God given right, to receive an inheritance from his fathers and to pass that inheritance on to his children unimpeded by the government. Secondly, he had a right to own and control his property. And thirdly, he had a right to be left alone. I mean, it's very reasonable. Those three rights, the government could get their property elsewhere if uh, they wanted, but no, Ahab was very perturbed and sullen that a citizen would dare to refuse his offer. And with that kind of an attitude, it's not really an offer, is it? It's a demand with that kind of an attitude. Just the possibility of civil anger such as Ahab had has caused some Christians to give up their rights way, way, way too easily. A misinterpretation of Romans 13 has caused many Christians to insist that we Christians ought to be the first dogs to roll over and allow the alpha male state to assert uh, his dominance. Uh, Dr. Robert Fugate will be publishing a book soon on the true meaning of Romans 13. But we'll see in this story that Naboth's refusal was a godly refusal that honored his ancestors, honored his family, honored the Eighth and Tenth Commandments, and was good for society. I mean, really, when you think about it, it is good for the whole society when an individual stands up for his rights. And I say God-given rights because most of the modern rights that people talk about are an abomination in God's sight. They are not rights at all. As our Declaration of Independence stated, we only have rights that are endowed by our Creator. We need to really emphasize that in our uh, our day and age. Uh, They are God-given rights. They are rights enumerated in the Bible. We can't just make up our own rights. They're God-given rights. Anyway, look at the boldness of Naboth in verse 3. He was not intimidated by power. In fact, I think Naboth's attitude mystifies some people. Verse 3 And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. Naboth knew that because he was a steward of the land, he could not cave into pragmatism. And being a believer, he probably despised the thought of his property being used by that wicked king. He was a steward of that property, knew God would require him to answer for how he handled or disposed of his property. This is what gave him boldness, and unless we are more conscious of God's demands upon us than we are of the government's demands upon us, we're not going to have the courage to tell the government this far and no further. We're not going to have the courage. By the way, there are good, not just the Rutherford Institute, but Alliance Defending Freedom. There's a number of legal organizations there to protect your rights, and if you guys are not members of Heritage what is Defense. Fence, uh, or Alliance Defending Freedom, some of these organizations, you need to think about it. I want to challenge God's people to stand with the Naboths of our day who are being robbed of their inheritance and to bring the kind of prophetic rebuke that Elijah brings in verses 17 through uh, 29. How do we bring prophetic rebuke? By sharing the Scripture very pointedly with those politicians. Modern Ahabs have used every sort of pressure to get us to relinquish the inheritance of our fathers. Now, it may not always be tangible property. America's founding fathers defined property much, much, much more broadly than we do. For example, Madison said, A man's land or merchandise or money is called property. He has property of peculiar value in his religious opinions and in the profession and practice of them. He has an equal property in the free use of his faculties and the free choice of objects on which to employ them. When an excess of power prevails, property of no sort is duly respected. No man is safe in his opinions, his person, his faculties, or his possessions. And we're seeing exactly that happening today where critical race theory or critical queer theory, all the other critical theories are endangering our right to have our own opinion. They're wanting to criminalize the wrong opinions, right? Uh, Madison, by the way, was describing what he meant and what the other uh, crafters of the Declaration of Independence meant by the pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And he basically said that what he's talking about there is freedom from government intrusion into your property, whether tangible or intangible. The Declaration does not guarantee happiness. That's a socialistic idea. Never guarantees happiness. Socialists try to interpret it that way. It's guaranteeing the right to be left alone so that you can pursue whatever biblical uh, goals that you have, and uh, opinions that you want to hold the free market of opinions is fast being eroded what are some of the other ways in which our inheritance is being given up a ruling of the houston federal district court said parents give up their rights when they drop the children off at public school they give up the rights my response is well quit dropping your children off at the government schools now there are some politicians who will say we need, you know, we, we need to force everyone so that there is conformity uh, in society to, to go to government schools, and if that happens we need to say no. God has given children as a stewardship trust to parents and we will not cave in to government demands to control education. This is an inheritance from our fathers that we are not going to give up. And actually it's my opinion, it's better to flee from the country that if your kids are going to be kidnapped and forced into government indoctrination centers, which is exactly what the government schools is, it's better to flee the country than to put up with that. Now there are many aspects of our inheritance that the government has asked us to give up. The Child Protection Services wants us to remove the rod from the home. The IRS on a number of occasions has asked the churches to stop preaching on certain topics, and thankfully courts have overruled them so far. This is giving up the heritage of our fathers. Many politicians want to disarm the populace. The Health and Human Services has sought to make us entrust our health to the government. The Department of Commerce has sought to regulate business. The Department of Agriculture, other departments have sought to bring farmers into socialism and very successfully done so. This is not simply an ancient story for ancient times. It is relevant for today. Problem 4 can be seen in verses 4 through 6. Where it is obvious that Ahab thinks that Naboth owes him something, the modern nanny state similarly thinks we owe him, owe them. Verse uh, verses six, four through six. So Ahab went into his house, sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel his wife came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. What a, what a self-centered, spoiled brat. Lies on bed, moping. I mean, this is just ridiculous. But I think this Ahab represents modern politics which sacrifices nothing for the population but expects the population to sacrifice everything for them. Now, of course, the government makes it look like they're generous, but stealing from you to give to you is not generosity. It is theft, and we need to call it theft. Now, uh, the government... Uh, um, makes it look like they're being generous, and they keep talking about them being generous, but when Naboth says no, the true state of affairs arises. Now, whatever problem C.S. Lewis had, and he had plenty, uh, he definitely took a stand against the socialistic state that thinks they have our interest in mind. I want to quote him. He said, "...of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated, but those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. Problem five. Failing to see that all true authority must come from God. Verse seven. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, "'You now exercise authority over Israel. "'Arise, eat food, let your heart be cheerful. "'I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite.'" I won't even get into the whole thing of the foolishness, uh, the contradiction there. You exercise authority, and then she goes ahead and exercises the authority. We won't get into all of that. There's there's many more points than 20 we could get from this uh, passage, but hey, 20 for 2020 was my goal.'" She is discounting Naboth's authority over his home. She's discounting any limits to Ahab's authority. So Naboth has limited authority. Ahab has no limits to his authority. She makes Ahab the source and definition of authority. If he wants it, he can take it. We need to get used to saying to the government that they have limits to their authority. We need to get used to saying to the government, there is a law above you to which you are accountable. We're going to hold you accountable to that uh, law. Now, I've been analyzing the votes of candidates for decades, and I have found that even Christian candidates routinely violate their oath of office by voting for things prohibited by the Constitution. And when I have confronted them with this, sometimes face-to-face, sometimes by email, frequently they will say, yeah, but nobody follows that part of the Constitution. We're not going to get anywhere if we do not have some pragmatic uh, aspects. And so what they're doing is they're saying it's a minor violation in order to stop this greater violation of the Constitution. My response to them is, look, you took an oath for office, and you are lying through your teeth if you follow pragmatism that oath of office does not allow for pragmatism. We need to hold these people to uh, account, and yet when you bring these kinds of things up, it seems like you get nowhere. It is time for Elijah's rebukes to statism to start being uh, brought uh, to bear uh, today. In any case, Ahab's sullenness shows that he thought Naboth owed him. He's treating Naboth as the servant. In contrast, Romans 13 calls the magistrate God's servant for your protection. We've taken God out of government, and as a result, we see very little servanthood. So let's stop treating the state as if it lacked accountability. The state is servant, not master, and we need to start instructing what Paul says in Romans 13:4 is God's servant to start acting like a servant. That they have limits to their authority, and their limits are what has been explicitly enumerated in the Scripture. I mean, they're actually, the Scripture's limits are much more than uh, what our Constitution, but wow, I'd be happy if they limited themselves to what the Constitution, they've gone way, way, way beyond the Constitution they have vowed to uphold, and those are enumerated powers given in the Constitution. Anyway, problem six, letting unelected officials run the government. Uh, We've already read verse seven where Jezebel offers to fix the problem. And by the way, there was nothing, if you look at secular history, there was nothing in Israel's constitution allowed her to do that. Nothing. She did not have the authority to act on his behalf, period. Verse 8 says, and she wrote letters in Ahab's name. Why? Because she didn't have the authority to do anything. So she wrote them in Ahab's name, sealed them with a the seal, sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naab. So notice she uses Ahab's seal to take this action but she wasn't Ahab. Well, this continues to be a problem today. In fact, for all of my lifetime, Congress has allowed agencies to pass laws that the Constitution explicitly only allows the Congress to do. Modern books on federal laws will list four sources for American law. They will talk about statutory laws coming from the Congress. They will say case law comes from the courts. Uh-uh. Uh, they will say that regulatory laws come from the agencies, and then there is executive orders from the president. They, they don't stop in these modern textbooks to question whether those are legitimate. Just like the elders and the nobles of 1 Kings 21 failed to question the authority of Jezebel to do what she was doing, or if they thought it was Ahab, to question Ahab's authority. Article 1, Section 1 of our Constitution stipulates, quote, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. That first phrase could not be more explicit. The word all rules out any legislation from the courts or the executive office or agencies. The phrase herein granted indicates there are no legislative powers allowed to the federal government at all unless they are explicitly given in the Constitution. Um, The The uh, uh, phrase granted means that the states gave certain powers to the federal government and created the federal government, not vice versa. The word vested means that these powers are fixed in one location, may not be delegated to agencies, committees, the 12-member super congress, to um, president, to courts, to any other body. And what people... Politicians have said to me when I bring up this point as they say, well, Congress is just delegating their authority to somebody, and so when they act, they're overseeing those agencies, so all of the agency's laws are really the laws of the agency. Well, my response to that is um, there is no... Congress cannot confer lawmaking power by statute since the Constitution gives no enumerated power of creating lawmakers. So sorry, there is no legitimate way of getting around that explicit first phrase in Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution, and there are very few congressmen, there are a couple, but there are very few who have not perjured themselves with their oath of office, and I think we need to confront them about that. But far more important than the fact that they're violating their oath of office is the fact their laws contradict God's laws. We really need to be more concerned about God's honor than we are the Constitution's honor. But both have been jeopardized. Now, of course, what I've said relates to the next problem, an unregulated use of executive orders. Verse 9 says, she wrote in the letters, saying, proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people. She is giving orders in the name of the king. Well, even the king didn't have authority to do that. This executive order went beyond the purpose of executive orders. The federal government of Israel had no authority whatsoever to dictate such things. These letters that were sealed with Ahab's seal had the force of law, as far as she was concerned. According to the Bible, they had no force of law. And we need to begin to get used to distinguishing between what is lawful and what is legal. What is legal is many times unlawful, as several Supreme Court cases have, have clearly uh, declared. And they say it was unlawful the moment it was created. If it's unconstitutional, it does not need to be obeyed. The vast majority of statutes and regulations today are constitutionally unlawful. They're certainly biblically unlawful, and Christians need to begin pointing that out. With no resistance, this state of affairs will continue. It's not going to change on its own. Now, when you realize how far-reaching some of the executive orders have been, it is breathtaking. On the back of your outline, there's a graphic of executive orders, and you'll see that Franklin D. Roosevelt issued the most at 3,721, and that did not even count the many, many informal ways in which he dictated policy uh, through agencies. And both Democrat and Republican uh, presidents have left... Most of the executive orders that you see that are listed in there, some of them have been rescinded, but there is, most of those continue to apply. Now here's the problem. Democrat, Democratic Party turns a blind eye to their own president's executive orders and criticize the opposite. The Republican Party turns a blind eye to their own president's executive orders and criticize the other party. What they're doing is they're being partial to the sins of their own party. And we should not allow for this. President Trump has not even finished his first term, and he's already done more executive orders than Obama did in his first term, and yet Christians praise him. We need to realize this abuse concentrates way too much power in the hands of one man. The fact that he's done a lot of good, and he has, and I appreciate the good, he's done a lot of good, does not excuse the bad things that he does. Misuse of executive orders started with Abraham Lincoln and it has increased since then. Problem eight has been with us for a long, long time. Liars and lying in politics. The Clintons appear to have been masters of this, but the public knows that most political regimes are just riddled, absolutely riddled, with liars and lying. This is a stronghold that needs to be prayed against. Jezebel is asking people to lie for her and for Ahab. Now I've already read verse 9, let me go on with verse 10. "...and seat two men scoundrels before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him, that he may die." Modern times are not the only times when politicians have used religion, notice her reference to blaspheming against God, have used religion to pander to the public and to increase their power. Deceitfulness is everywhere. And of course, treating human life as expendable is also illustrated in that verse. Naboth's life was taken without due process of law, just as millions of babies have had their lives snuffed out in America without due process of law. But I want you to notice, God does not let people weasel away with excuses. I want you to notice that Ahab didn't do it himself, but God still holds Ahab accountable. We need to ask why. In verse 7, Jezebel says, I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. She did it, not Ahab. And Ahab didn't even know that she had done it until Jezebel told him. And yet verse 19 still holds him accountable because he didn't resist it. See, ignorance is not an excuse for a politician, nor is it enough for him to say, hey, I didn't commit an abortion ever in my life. I'm pro-life. It's not enough for him to to say that when a politician refuses to do all in his power to stop abortion he is still treating life with less respect than God does. Okay? He should have Ahab here should have brought his wife up on charges of murder. She was a murderer. Are our leaders really pro life when they support fetal tissue research? No. Are our politicians and leaders really pro life? Uh, when they support the use of fetal tissue in vaccines. No. And by the way, COVID, at least some of the COVID-19 vaccines are using fetal tissue. You're going to have, you know, some fetal cells injected into you. you. You need to check these things out. It says that people... In the Scripture, uh, it it makes life a litmus test, and it says that people are not qualified for the position of civic office if they are unwilling to, quote, save the children of the needy. Psalm 82, verses 2 through 4, and Psalm 82, by the way, is talking to politicians. And God holds them guilty if they do not save the children of the needy. But it's not just the blood of babies that is on our hands. There appears to be strong evidence that previous presidents have knocked off inconvenient people in America, but certainly the CIA's involvement in starting wars, overturning regimes, destabilizing regions, counts as a serious violation of the Sixth Commandment on a huge scale. Ungodly wars are another disregard for life. But to me, what is most horrific is the blatant disregard of life in the abortion holocaust. I do not take a politician seriously. They aren't willing to do more than mere tokenism against abortion. I would call people to join with End Abortion Now movement. Call it what it is, murder. Problem 10, when lower officials refuse to engage in interposition. Look at how scurrilous and cowardly these lower officials were in verses 11 through 12. So the men of this city, the elders and nobles who were inhabitants of this city, did as Jezebel had sent to them as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people. When those elders, nobles, and other officials saw that letter, they should have united in resisting Ahab and Jezebel. They could have, but their careers were more important to them than their standing with God. By the way, interposition is a thoroughly biblical doctrine. It's a thoroughly American doctrine. Uh, You can think of the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions of 1798, the Hartford Convention of 1814, South Carolina Ordinance of Nullification, 1830. There are so many examples in American history. We've just forgotten about that. In verses 8 through 13, we see the elders and the nobles of the city unwilling to do that, unwilling to buck the king, unwilling... To serve God by upholding their constitution and standing up for innocent lives within their uh, country. They 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 were supposed to be defending their country against all enemies, external and internal. I would say there are far more internal enemies in America than we have external enemies. Far more. It is God's mandate to a lower magistrate to protect the citizens under their care from the tyranny of another magistrate. Not just an option, it is a duty. And to the cowardly civic officers who prefer popularity to principle, who opt for silence rather than having outrage against murder, Psalm 58 says this, Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? So what's he accusing them of when he calls these magistrates silent ones? He's saying, you guys are not even speaking against evil. And then the rest of the verses call them out for not taking any actions not interposing themselves between tyrants and the citizens they are called to protect. Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? No. In heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. So he's blaming the silent ones with murder simply for failing to interpose. They didn't do what they could have done to protect a Naboth. Problem 11. Courts that judge without due process. Verses 13 through 14. And two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him, and the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Then they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. You know, this sounds so similar to the David de court case in which the criminal organization acts the victim And DeLayden, who exposed their crimes, is being treated as the criminal. It's totally upside down. I found it interesting this past April, uh, during the court case hearings, he was able to get some of these documents revealed, which they've been trying to hide, so it kind of backfired against them. Uh, One of the documents, just one, Showed Planned Parenthood violating federal law by charging twenty-five thousand dollars for fetal tissue and maternal blood samples in two thousand twelve. So what they've been doing is they've been marketing the murder of babies, and then they have been marketing the prop- parts of these murdered babies. Planned Parenthood is a criminal nation, uh, not nation, is a criminal organization, and they really need to be taken down by the government. But similar problems could be pointed out in courts across this nation. Wicked judges have repeatedly acted in wicked ways to prosecute people like General Flynn or let criminals off the hook. And we need to pray against the courts and ask God for court reform. By the way, check the records of the judges before you vote for them. I mean, we have the privilege, at least in Nebraska, I don't know, does Iowa retain, vote for retaining? We have the privilege of voting to retain or not retain a judge. I I voted to not retain 11 out of the 13 judges. Why? Because they have engaged in scandalously unlawful decisions. Problem 12. Theft by eminent domain. Verses 15 through 16. And it came to pass, when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. So it was, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up, went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now something to keep in mind is that only Naboth is dead. His family should have been able to inherit the land from Naboth, after Naboth's dead, but without Naboth's manly opposition, the government is able to swoop in, confiscate the land from the family. Our nation has been guilty of this thousands, I'm not exaggerating, thousands of times. And sadly, the Supreme Court made eminent domain for any reason whatsoever legal in the Kilo v. City of New London case of 2005. Let me just read a summary of what they declared they declared that using the power of eminent domain to take property from poorer people and give the property to large corporations who pay more taxes to be a public use under the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. It's really sad, and I think it's appropriate to pray imprecations against such thieves, and we're going to do so at the end of this service. Problem 13 is a lack of an Elijah-like black-robed regiment in America that will fearlessly preach against the evils of our civil government. Israel had it back then. Verse 17 has Elijah on the scene to bring the word of God to the state, to be willing to stand in the gap for the innocent. But who is bringing the word of God to the state today? There are a few. There are a few that are out there. I'm a part of a uh, there's actually more than one black robe regiment in America. I'm a part of, of one of those. By the way, black robe regiment got its name from the time of the War for Independence when, when uh, preachers wore a black robe. And that was a sign that they were a teacher, not a priest, but a, but a teacher. And because they were so involved in applying God's word to all of life, to economics, to politics, and whatever, and because they were themselves involved in the war for independence and encouraged others to be so, the British called them the Black Robed Regiment. They knew the power that these preachers had to influence an entire nation. By the way, they mostly blamed the Presbyterians. Uh, just give you a few statistics here. Um, well, let me quote from Horace Walpole first. Um, He told the House of Commons in England when the news of the American um, uh, War for Independence arrived, he told them, "'Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson, and that is the end of it.'" Uh, The Presbyterian parson that he's referring to is Pastor John Witherspoon, who was a Presbyterian who had trained so many of the people who were actually our founding fathers in America. And um, historians estimate that half of the Revolutionary Army was made up of Presbyterians. Just saying. Just a little tidbit of history. Point is, the churches were salt and light. They made a difference in politics. But what happens when the salt loses its saltiness? Jesus says that it becomes worthless and fit only for being cast out and trampled underfoot of men. Matthew 5.13. Problem 14. Assuming that Scripture and politics don't mix... I mean, this bad theology has been a scourge upon America. Pietism, dispensationalism, two-kingdom, radical two-kingdom theology, even though many of these people are sincere, they have been blinded to the fact that the Bible applies to all of life, and so they have opted instead for natural law. Let me tell you something. Politicians love natural law because it's a rubber nose. You can twist any way that you want. There's absolutely no accountability to natural law. And is it any wonder that our government has become more and more antichrist? Preachers aren't salt. And Matthew 5.13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot of men. Are we under the boot of ungodly men? We are. We're being trampled under men. We are. But Jesus blames that condition on the church failing to be salt and light failing to apply God's word to culture. Now, Elijah had absolutely no problem bringing the inspired word to kings. Verses 17 through 19. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord. Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord. In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. Problem 15. Christians are too nice. You might say, how is that a problem? It's a big problem. For sure... Christians today, and I've tried to encourage pastors, are not willing to pray the inspired, imprecatory prayers of the psalms that God has commanded us to uh, to pray and to sing. For sure, they would not say the not very nice words of verse 19. Let Let me repeat those words because they may become prophetic words against at least some politicians today. "'You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession?' And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. Now here's the thing. The enemy expects, and they've had a long history of, uh, of this, they expect Christians to be nice and roll over. They're not prepared for Elijahs who rock their world. And I'm praying that God would not just raise up one or two or a dozen Elijahs, but hundreds of Elijahs in America who are connected to God, connected to each other, and ready to do spiritual battle against the forces of darkness. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Problem 16 is tyrants calling the freedom lovers the enemy. (laughs) It's really turning... It's turning everything upside down. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Now we are seeing this increasing antithesis in America where pagans are more self-consciously hating Christianity, speaking out against Christianity, becoming vicious in their attacks against all freedom lovers. They're finally realizing Christianity and the law is a threat to their goals. Senator Al Franken's labeling of the Alliance Defending Freedom. You know Alliance Defending Freedom, right? They're a fantastic Christian evangelical organization simply defending Christians against persecution. So Al Franken has labeled Alliance Defending Freedom as a hate group. I mean it's just one of thousands of examples of polarization and increasing polarization that we see between Ahab and Naboth, between the freedom lovers who appreciate God's law and the limits of God's law and those uh, who do not see rather than denying that they are enemies as so many Christians have done we're just trying to be nice right no no I'm not treating you as an enemy no we need to say no you are enemies anybody who deliberately and consistently is overturning the Constitution should be called out for who he is. He's committing treason. Anybody who consistently, deliberately overturns God's law is committing treason against God. They are enemies, and they are very, very dangerous enemies. Their own oath of office recognizes the presence of internal enemies. So don't be saying, oh, you can't be calling fellow Americans enemies. No, no, no. Their oath of office says you need to protect the Constitution against... All enemies, external and internal, well now the foxes are the ones who are defending the chicken coop. Problem 17. Assuming that God doesn't judge nations. Ahab might have come to that conclusion that he's been doing all kinds of things that God said he would punish, and eh, I'm not being punished, and God doesn't judge nations. Does God even exist? The God of Israel, does Jehovah even exist? But he was so wrong because, number one, Ahab himself was God's judgment upon Israel. God sometimes allows tyranny to judge his people. He was a judgment, uh, and it was there already. But there's more, starting to read at verse 21. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. We should be willing to agree with God in praying similar judgments against Anyone who is as wicked as Ahab was. Now sadly, the church at large is not willing to do so, and the consequence is laid out in James 4, verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have liberty because you're not willing to ask for God to take tyrants out, to judge them. The precondition to liberty... If the bride would be like the importunate widow in Luke 18 and ask for justice against her enemies, God would give it. He guarantees he will give it. He says, will not God bring about justice for his own elect who cry to him day and night and will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will bring about justice for them and quickly. He guarantees it. The problem is that the church of Jesus Christ has not been like that widow. They have refused to use God's imprecatory psalms to petition God's justice. Those are the prayers of Jesus. By the way, those imprecatory, you could not have more holy prayers in all of the Bible than the prayers of Jesus. They are holy. We're simply coming into agreement with Jesus. God lays the blame for America's problems at the feet of the church. You do not have because you do not ask. In our closing inspired psalm, we're going to be asking God to do exactly this by singing Psalm 94a. Problem 18, assuming that character does not matter in candidates, just because a nation is prosperous, as it was under Ahab, Ahab, just because a nation has a strong defense against external enemies, as it did under Ahab, just because businesses prospered, as they did under Ahab, does not mean that God is pleased. See, here's the sad thing. Christians are quite content if the candidate they vote for gives them some of the things that are their top priorities and they just ignore all of the unconstitutional and unbiblical things that these candidates do. God's evaluation of Ahab is given in verses 25 through 26. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel his wife stirred him up and he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So God wants us to not only evaluate the character of the candidates we vote for but the character of their wives. Why? There's influence, right? At the end of every king's life, there was an evaluation of his whole reign based on his character. We have given up doing that in the last few decades and have opted for more pragmatic criteria for our votes. And I would urge congregants, try to justify your votes based on the Bible. I'm not saying there, there can't be differing. You could vote for a, a totally different way than I because um, we, we may disagree in how to apply the Bible, but my point is use the Bible. We're not going to all necessarily be together, but use the Bible. Don't just use freer or pragmatism. Problem 19. Assuming that judgment can't be reversed. This attitude makes people give up and not try. Now, well, there's nothing we can do. God's predestined, things are going to get worse and worse, and okay, we're not going to do anything. Consider this. Who would have thought that wicked king Ahab would repent? Who would have thought that God would relent on his judgment? So again, on one hand, we cannot guarantee that we're going to receive judgment right away. I mean, God is so incredibly patient. So yes, judgment is looming, but if we call for repentance, we might see a reversal of judgment. Verses 27 through 29 say, So it was when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his body, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. And so, this chapter that calls us to prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. But it's also a reminder that repentance is unlikely to come from our politicians if the church is unwilling to bring the rebukes of God's Word. I doubt we're going to have repentance because the church is not bringing those kind of rebukes. If we bring those kind of rebukes, we might get. Now, the last problem is the opposite extreme. Interpreting God's patience in the past as grounds, He will be patient forever. And the judgment will never come in history. And, of course, the last verse that I read shows how that is a false assumption. Judgments always eventually come to every nation that is in rebellion. So let me end by encouraging us to join with Elijah and pronouncing God's curses upon his enemies in our own nation. We're going to be doing so by singing Psalm 94a. God can answer such prayers in two ways. Uh, if his enemies repent, then God will save them because Christ bore that judgment in their place. We'll rejoice in their repentance, we'll rejoice that they've avoided the judgment. But if they don't repent, God can take them out. And I believe God will take out His enemies when the church more widely begins to sing such imprecatory psalms, and we can begin the process. And by leaving this judgment in God's hands, we're freed from bitterness and revenge. We're able to love our enemies. We're able to preach the gospel to them just like David did. David wrote most of his psalms against who? Saul and his son Absalom, and he really did good to them. He loved them. So anyway, just saying, Uh, we don't take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, but America is in such a crisis situation that it is imperative that we not ignore God's opinions of the statism that is rife in all but two of the 50, more than 50, national political parties. I was astounded to discover that there are more than 50 statist parties in America. It's just different forms of statism. Just astounding. But rather than feeling hopeless, I turn to the God who can move mountains, who can bring reformations, who can judge enemies, who can revive the church may our church have faith that this is possible amen let's pray father god with elijah we pray your curses upon the statist politics of our nation from whatever party that statism arises we pray that you would take out your enemies who have been raising their fist against you in a more and more high-handed way and as you declared perpetual war against amalek in Exodus 17, verse 16, I pray that you would declare perpetual war against all who were casting off the bonds of Christ. Please conquer your enemies in our nation, either through conversion and discipleship or through other means, but we long to see your glory lifted up in our nation. Help us not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Help us not to become bitter, but to have love. Help us never to become hopeless, but to be filled with hope and faith by the infilling of your Holy Spirit. Your enemies in this nation are no match for you. We believe that. And so as we close this service by singing your inspired prayer in Psalm 94, may you hear, may you vindicate your name and your glory, may you exalt your Son above his enemies. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.